Oh, blessings, blessings. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be in verse 4. And this is somewhat of what we preachers call a technical sermon, because Paul moves quickly through a lot of theology. But there is a phrase in here that grabbed me emotionally. So this week, I balance between the theological mind of what does it mean to be in one body, one spirit, whose body are we talking about, whose spirit, one baptism, how many baptisms, who, who is that for? And then the emotional part of me that is drawn to some certain words in these verses. So we're going to balance between the two today. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 begins, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. Let's pray together over this text. Dear Lord Jesus, help us to understand the descension of Christ, Lord, for my sin. And help me to glorify and worship him for his ascension, Lord, into glory, to complete the saving process of my heart. Lord, this is not for me. Jesus didn't go all that way and suffer all that much because I'm so great and so special and so worthy of saving. Lord, because it was a mission from God the Father. It was a directive to the Son not to fail, to bring back any that were God's, Lord, and he has not failed. And he will not fail. So we thank you for that. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Back to verse 4. There is one body. Without a conjunction here, Paul is listing a lot of elements that are centering on the three persons of the Trinity. And he's talking about the one body, the universal church. That is everyone, everywhere who claims the name of Jesus Christ truly according to the scripture. That's what we mean by the universal church. It is not every single person who thinks Jesus is a cool guy or every single person who says, I believe, because even the demons believe and tremble. So who are we talking about here with one body, one church? We're talking about everyone everywhere who is truly converted, who truly worships the name Jesus Christ, who truly sacrifices and serves and loves their neighbor. They are drawn to the word of God. They love God's presence. They love the Holy Spirit in them. They love to worship God. That's who we're talking about. So make no mistake, we're not speaking of those who think God is cool or think God is great or, hey, I'm I'm down with that God guy the same way they are with Santa Claus. We're talking about actual, committed, God-fearing believers. That's who we're talking about. One spirit refers to the Holy Spirit who indwells within the church. What did Jesus promise? I will send you a comforter to comfort me in this world because this world is dark, my flesh is dark, my flesh is sinful and ready to bring me to death. Who will comfort me? The Spirit. Now the words you were called to one hope. This is one of the emotional things I was drawn to. If your hope is in something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, Be very afraid, my friend, for you have no true hope at all. In fact, your hopes are going to be dashed. And unfortunately, the dashing of hopes on Judgment Day is not the time to find out that your hope is in the wrong place. I did several weddings back-to-back this week. 
That's why I'm not wearing my slacks. I basically wore them out this week. It was in a suit all week. But at one of the weddings, I got to talking to one of the uh, uh, sons of the couple, and he was a Catholic, very, very devout Orthodox Catholic. And we were talking back and forth, and very good conversation, very, very awesome, because he was, you know, we were able to dialogue. And I said, you know, we're going to disagree on a lot of this stuff. I said, but let me ask you a question. If we get to heaven and we find out that I'm right and you're wrong, I said, or if we get to heaven and we find out that you're right and I'm wrong and God tells me, Josh, you should have been doing more mass. Will my faith in Christ need to change based on my allegiance to certain practices? And he, had, he admitted, no. I said, okay, so we're agreeing on the same Christ. It's just a matter of sometimes how we practice these things. Now, within Orthodox Catholicism, I would maybe disagree at a few points. But I asked him this question. I said, so if I'm trusting in Christ, what then separates us from being in one body together? And he didn't have a good answer, but we also didn't have a whole lot of time to continue talking. And as I was thinking about that conversation and thinking about this sermon, this message, I realized that some of the freedom we have in the New Testament for different denominations is given by God for his glory. That's why some churches do things the way they do it. That's why we do things the way we do it. To some people, eating after lunch after, sacrilegious. They would never do that. To us, it's every day, right? To some, they don't use instruments in their worship. To others, they wouldn't dare sing without a full choir of, 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 of 10% of the church or more. These differences become so ingrained sometimes that we actually separate Christ based on the differences. But that's not what Paul says here. He says you were called to one hope, and what is the hope you were called to? Christ, not that you're part of the right church, not that you have the right theology, not that you have the right music or the right pastor or the right people, but you have Christ. And this is inevitably, whenever I'm discussing this with people, somebody goes, yeah, 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 but... You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you know, and I quote this a lot, but people say this to me, you gotta stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And I'm like, that wasn't Jesus, that was John Wayne you just quoted. Now, I'm not saying that you can just become a Catholic and it's the same as being a Baptist. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this, is, this, is that there's going to be a lot of people in heaven who are going to be worshiping in the heavenly choir next to people they said were heretics. And it changes throughout history. You know, I'm reading Thomas, Thomas Kempis right now. He's a 14th century Catholic. Do you know what, where the Baptists were in the 14th century? They didn't exist. Martin Luther's not even born yet. Protestant Reformation's 100 years away. But he's writing. And there's a line that he wrote that said, Lord, forgive me for my constant failures to continue to draw from the well of my flesh. Help me to draw only from you. And I thought, that's one hope. So let me challenge you a little bit. As somebody who, you heard someone else say I was very educated. I didn't say that. I didn't toot that horn. Somebody else brought it up. The door is open. Let me tell you something as somebody who's very educated. If I don't have my hope in one simple little truth that I can get a baby to understand, then none of the rest of it means anything. But that also applies to your complex theology later on. Don't get so intelligent 
that you lose the simplicity of your Lord and Savior. Don't get so haughty that you forget the childlike nature of this faith. Don't become so spiritually rich that you forget Jesus, for that's no spiritual richness at all. I have known far too many who fall and have fallen because it got to be about the position. It got to be about the movement. It got to be about the momentum and not the simple hope of Christ. And I ended my conversation with this young Catholic man by, by saying two things. Number one, I think you're wrong. Actually, three things. Number one, I think you're wrong. Number two, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And number three, if your hope is in Jesus Christ, then I will see you in heaven. Verse five, we are in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One faith speaks most likely not of objective faith, that is, the body of truth believed by Christians, but rather probably a subjective faith, which is exercised by Christians in Christ their Lord. One baptism may refer to water. It also may refer to the outward symbol of the inward reality. It could refer to the believer's identification with Christ in his death. It seems most likely that it's the uh, former, but it could be the latter as well. If it refers to water baptism, then the idea that this is a single act, believers demonstrate their spiritual unity. Do you know why Baptists don't go to Krispy Kreme? We go to Dunkin' Donuts because we believe in full immersion. So I said it today, Krispy Kreme is not of the Lord. No, I'm just playing, I'm just playing. You can go eat at Zaxby's and Krispy Kreme instead of the Lord's restaurants. <laughs> but we do believe in one baptism. Why? Now, does that refer to you can only be baptized once and some other baptism will be invalid? No. In fact, there was only one true baptism, and that is the spiritual baptism of being overshadowed by the presence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You can dump as much water on you as you want. I can take you up there and keep dunking you till you repent. But it's not really going to change anything unless it happens inside. I can even hold you under. I'm not going to raise you back up till you're saved, so stay down there. Convert or die. It's the greatest evangelism strategy. <laughs> I can do that, but it's not going to change you until God changes you from the inside out. So one baptism does not refer to uh, being, well, I was baptized as a kid, so I better not do it again, even though I'm actually saved now. No. It refers to God's not going to spiritually re-baptize you. What did he say to Peter? Peter, you don't need your head washed. You need your feet washed. Because you're walking in this dirty, filthy, sinful world. So wash your feet. But your head, your mind, your heart, who you are, that is mine. And nothing will take you from me. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, we have to <laughs> discuss this a little bit. This is one of my favorite verses whenever someone brings up free will, right? Or, or, or sovereignty, and people will ask, Do I, am I making decisions or is God making every decision? Or is it kind of 
both? And the answer is, none of that is right. This is right. God is your father. Now, father of all uh, uh, very limits the scope here we're talking about. So the alls we are speaking of is not everybody in the world. We are talking about all who are God's children. That's who we're talking about. One God and father of all. It is referring to God and his relationship to believers. It refers to all believers, not all mankind. That's important here. Because if it did refer to all mankind, then that would make God responsible for sin when the wicked do what they do, and he's through and in them. So that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about all everywhere. He's talking about all the church. Now that we understand that, if God is your father, he is over all and through all and in all. Do you know what I think is funny about free will? The only time you hear about free will typically is salvation. That's about the only time. Do you know, and I don't think that's where it applies. You know where I think free will applies? Peter saw a vision of glorious, delicious, non-Jewish meat. And God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. God has sent pork and beef and chicken. Pick what you like for lunch. There's your free will. Lord, you sent all this abundance for me. Think about the garden. You may eat of any tree of this, this fruit, but not this one. That's the only one. They could have chosen any other tree. But what's the one they wanted? So that's the problem with free will. My flesh wants sin. It wants what God hates. It desires what will kill me spiritually. But I love this verse because we should apply it the next time we're talking about sovereignty. God, the Father, is over all. So he is over. He is in charge. He is sovereign. He is through. There's no action I take that God is not a part of. Every beat of my heart and chemical fire of my brain is by God's graciousness to me. There's not a moment where I am separate from God going, yes, Lord, I'm disrupting your will and your ways by existing. This is false. Even the hearts of the wicked beat because of God's stay of his judgmental hand. That's what Psalms is all about. Psalms is not just only a list of books that David was interested in writing about so he could sing. No, Psalms is where we get our theology of why do the wicked, or why are they allowed to continue? Why, God, are they allowed to do what they do? Because in Psalms we see over and over again, for yet a little while the wicked prosper. And I'm paraphrasing a lot of Psalms. But soon I will bring my judgment and I will rescue my people. He is over and through and in all. In all. I love this. And we're talking about just the church now, not the entire world. God is in you. And specifically, God the Spirit is in you. That baptism we talked about, that indwelling of that Spirit. He is in you and has given you certain gifts that we're going to see next week. Those, that fivefold ministry. If you're in Corinthians, the list of all the gifts there. If you're in Galatians, the Spirit gives you these things. And there's, a, there's a, uh, another great verse we'll see in a second. But he is over you, he's through you, and he's in you. This relationship that God now has with you is not a relationship where God is up in heaven going, well, 
I gave them a nice book. I hope they read it and do what it says. And it's not a relationship where we're down here going, well, God wants us to do this, (laughs) but I'm going to do this instead. This is a relationship similar to a pregnant woman and the baby within her. The child will not survive outside. It is entirely, completely dependent on the parent for life, for food, for oxygen, for nutrients, for blood. And if that connection is broken, the child will die. That's the relationship God's children have with him. You want to know why you struggle sometimes? Because if you're truly saved, God is spanking you spiritually. He has grounded you sometimes. You want to know why you might struggle? Because you didn't do what he said. And he said, all right, that's it. Your spiritual car keys, give them. You're done for the month. You're going to have to ride the spiritual bike around. He is over you and through you and in you. He is over you as sovereign. He lives through you and he manifests himself in you. What beauty. That's the relationship I want with God. I'm afraid when I hear some people talk about this relationship and they're they're describing God as if he's the president. They know him. He's in charge, but he doesn't know me. And I don't have a voice. I'm not heard. This is not that kind of relationship God has with you. God has a parent-to-child relationship. And he loves his children. He will discipline his children because he loves them. He will strike his children because he loves them. He will pull his children away from the edge of the pit because he loves them. This is the relationship you must have with God and will have if you are truly saved. Verse 7, Paul changes uh, gears here a little bit. He says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each believer is to function in the body of Christ by God's power proportionate to the gift, spiritual abilities, bestowed on them. Which means, wherever I am in God's holy temple, there is not one spot higher than the other. This thing that we do where I'm on stage and I have the microphone and it makes me the boss, that's not God's temple. This is just a format. I'm not over you because I'm up here three feet elevated. Because I have the talking stick. Wherever you are in the body of Christ, God has placed you. Which means, Christians, it's not the other Christian's fault that what you want isn't happening. And we pastors have to remember that too. It's not the church that's stopping you from doing something. Everything is because of God's placing and his bestowing of gifts. Which means we have no true place to stand and complain about our place in the church. And when God says stay, stay, and when he says go, go, and when he says talk, talk, and when he says shut up, we shut up! 
Grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift, and God has measured rightly. He is not a chef that's got the measurements out of proportion. Can I brag on Miss Charlotte a little bit? And all the kitchen ladies, they made this chicken dish Friday. What is in that broth? I see some garlic in there. I don't even know. I stole the, the bowl. The big giant container y'all put in the fridge, it's almost empty at my house. Chuck came over to my house yesterday because they were dress shopping for my sister-in-law, and I, I had him take a taste. He had to have some right then. It was delicious, and it's still delicious, and I'm probably going to eat some tonight. Because that's how good and talented and gifted they are at measuring out the ingredients to make that deliciousness. I don't even know what's in that stuff. It is Holy Spirit to me. <laughs> it showed up and it's amazing. I don't even know what happened. How much more is God measuring rightly? And when God measures, it's the sweetest. It's dining at the best food. So don't be upset. Don't be angry. It's not going your way. It's not, if things aren't happening how you want. Because what's going on is by God's hand. And who are we to say that, yeah, God got that wrong? Lord, you know I'm making a point here. I did not just say that in seriousness. Lightning come down through this roof. Are we really going to say that and mean it as the church? God got it wrong. I'll get it right. Who said that in the Bible? Think about it. Satan, the Israelites with the golden calf, Simon the magician, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, who else? Saul, King Saul. Every person who said, God's got it wrong, I'll do it right. It didn't end well. Most of the time it ended in death. But every person who humbled themselves, every person who bowed their face to the Lord and said, Lord, you are God. You have it right. I forgive me for the mistakes I made. Who are they? Moses, Joshua, David, even Solomon with his mistakes knew that only the Lord can give me wisdom. The measure of Christ's gift to you is the right measure. Trust that God has given you what He wants for you. Now, we're not talking about growing in spiritual knowledge. Of course, God wants you to learn more about him so you can love him and glorify him more. No, I'm talking about, I'm gifted to do this. But let me tell you something, guys. In American culture, this looks like something up here preaching, right? But without all of you, I would just be standing up here preaching to an empty room. Do you know what we call that in American culture? Insanity. We all are placed here to exercise our gifts. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, we have to do a little deep dive here. You guys ready? Paul is sort of quoting Psalm 68. So please turn to Psalm 68. But he's not actually quoting the Psalm verbatim. He is just kind of giving an overview of the entire Psalm. But I love this because he's talking about Jesus. He says, he ascended on high. He has a host of captives with him. Where does Jesus get a host of captives from? A bunch of sinners he has just redeemed from the clutches of Satan. Go to Psalm 68, verse 18. 
It's better to think that Paul was not quoting a particular verse from Psalm 68, but rather uh, he's emphasizing the entire psalm. The essence of this Psalm 68 is a military victor who has the right to give gifts to those who are identified with him. Christ, having captivated and captured sinful people by redeeming them, is both victor and gift giver to them. Psalm 68, verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. Now, this is where we have to interpret the Bible. Is Jesus driving a train, choo-choo, to heaven? No, he's got a caravan. Right, Eliza? He's got, a, he's got a parade that he's marching to heaven. In your train, and you are receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious. This is the part that has captured my heart this week, because I was among the rebellious, and you were among the rebellious. We didn't want Jesus to be our Savior. We didn't want him to be our victor. We didn't want to follow his lead. We wanted to do our own sinful, fleshly thing, but God saved us anyway. Even among the rebellious, that, look at the end of the verse, that the Lord God may dwell there. God is dwelling in the hearts of the former rebellious evil people that hated him. There's no better, there's no better example than Paul persecuting God's church, hurting his people. And instead of snuffing Paul's life out, which he would have been right to do, if the name of Paul in church history was the name of an evil guy that God killed, God would be just in doing it. But we know Paul as a name of mercy and turnaround, conversion, and service. Even among the rebellious, God is going to dwell among the captives and rebellious. He will take the former captives and former rebellious ones and cause them to become like himself, holy. Christ ascended on high, and one day he will return to gather his people and ascend with them for one final time. The great St. Augustine said this, Out of compassion for us, he descended from heaven, and although he ascended alone, we also ascend, because we are in him by grace. Thus, not one Christ, uh, no one but Christ descended, and no one but Christ ascended, not because there is no distinction between head and body, but because the body as a unity cannot be separated from the head. Though Jesus has left us to go prepare a place, he's not leaving us behind. He is not going to forget his people. He will not fail to save them. He will not fail to save you. But I warn you, if you be rebellious today, if now you are the rebellious one, if now rebellion is in your heart and you do not want Christ as Lord, you do not follow him, serve him, or worship him, I warn you, God's wrath is also descending. Wheat and tares are going to be picked up and the wheat will be rescued. The tares will be thrown into fire. Go back to Ephesians. 
If you are rebellious today, I caution you, I warn you, I plead with you, give up your rebellion. Lay down your fleshly arrogance that you know better than God and run to the cross. Run to the empty tomb. Run to the, to the one who can save your soul. Verse 9 of Ephesians 4. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. i got to read a little bit of commentary here to get this straight. This is from Harold Homer, great, great commentator. Christ could ascend, he had to descend. What is meant by the lower earthly regions? Literally the lowest parts of the earth. We can take this in three ways. Number one, into the lower parts, namely the earth. This refers to Christ's incarnation, his descent from glory down to the world. Two, this could mean Christ descended into what they call Hades between his death and resurrection. Or three, this would refer to Christ's death and his burial in the grave. The third view fits the context best for this reason. Because in his death, Christ has won victory over sin and redeemed those who would be given as gifts to the church. So what is meant by he descended into the lower regions? There's a lot of theology about the first two points. Christ went into hell and preached there. Christ was in this other place. But the best and most literal view is this. When he descended into the lower regions, the earth, it's Joseph of Arimathea putting his body in the tomb. And the stone being rolled in front and the Roman guards there to guard his body. And the world thinks it's one. Satan shouts for joy that night. But even he knows, because he knows the word, he knows Sunday is coming. He who descended, now Jesus did descend from heaven into the earth, and there's so much there, that's a whole other sermon. But he who descended to the earth, descended even further. Christ has gone to a place that none of us have been to, death. Who are we to tell Jesus what he should be doing when he's the one who's gone to the place you and I haven't even been to yet? You want to talk about experience? You want to talk about knowing some wisdom about a topic? Jesus knows about death because he's been there. Oh, we say we do. We have people who technically died and saw heaven or saw something. But the Bible is clear. It's appointed to man wants to die. Your heart may stop for a short amount of time, but the soul is not left until it's time. Christ has been where you are going. And not only has he been there, not only has he experienced it, not only is he a guide who can walk you through that process, he has destroyed the hold that that place has on you. You are going to die. We all are. I know we have hopes that the trumpets will sound while we still live. Statistically, it's probably not going to happen. I heard a great theologian say the other day, you know, we're probably in the early days of the church. The rumblings we're seeing are not even close to the rumblings of judgment. That was his opinion, and I was like, ooh. You couple that if you read church history, every generation thinks it's the last days. <laughs> every generation. But no one knows. Scripture's clear. No one knows the day. 
Christ has been to the place, the descended lower place of the earth, the most humble place you can achieve, death. He put himself lower than anyone else so that when he ascended, when he ascended out of the tomb and then finally from the mountain into the clouds, he has achieved victory over not just his death, but your death. Which means we have one hope that we can trust in, that when I die, I'm not going to be locked in that tomb. I'm not going to be tormented in hell. In Christ, I am going to ascend as he ascended. Which gives me hope. I'm mature enough right now today that I'm not afraid to die. Do you know what I am afraid of in my immaturity? is being a vegetable and, and, and hard on my wife. And I ask the Lord to help me deal with that. I've even asked the Lord about the day that I die. You guys ever think about death? I don't think we do enough. Especially young people, right? Bulletproof, right guys? I've seriously asked the Lord, can I describe to you? I have time. It's Pastor Appreciation Day. You can all wait past noon for a minute. My goodness. Chick-fil-A's already closed. I don't know what you're all trying to get out of here to. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, just, I just heard another joke I'll share with you. There was a pastor who told his church one day, hey, if you guys all come to church, I'll take you all out to buy Chick-fil-A. <laughs> That's just mean. <laughs> That's just mean. I've asked the Lord about the day that I die. And I've asked God to consider my plans for that day. And I think he's going to listen. Because I asked really nicely. No one knows. You don't know what's going to happen. You can't plan that day out. You can't plan that moment out. I hope I go like Moses. He had his natural strength until he didn't. I'd love nothing more than to Blair call the girls and say, he's gone. That'd be my preferred way. But if I lay there in pain for years, it'll still be because God measured out my life. And whatever's happening is happening because it's glorifying to him. And I can take comfort even in that. I think about death probably more than a 33-year-old should think about it. But that's because the Bible has a lot of death, and it's about a lot of death. But in Christ, he's the only one, it's not the end of the story. He's the only one that it's not the final nail in the coffin, and then he died. Every other hero of, of fame and fortune and fiction and nonfiction we have, his story ends with, and then he died except the Lord Jesus. He's the only one. The story keeps going. Oh, and it's not just an epilogue. The third chapter, the, the third act, the end has not even happened yet. His victory is coming, and if you hope in him today, then your victory is coming. So stand firm, stand strong, be ready, fight if needed. Be ready. Because he who descended into sin and death and darkness, he who descended into the shame of false accusations and lies, he who descended into the grave, this is Jesus. He 
has ascended out of that grave. He ascended out of lies into truth. He who ascended out of the world into glory, he will return to gather we who repent and believe in him. And we will ascend with him into the rest and the glory of God the Father. Church, I appreciate you guys appreciating me today. I appreciate you. But I got to tell you, I appreciate he who died for me and he who was raised and he who will raise me. He's the one I appreciate today. Because without him, I'm not here. You're not here. We're just a fancy country club. But in him, in him, there is life here. There is eternity at our fingertips. And God is saying to his children, you are doing well. And one day I will say, well done. So continue to be good and faithful servants. Continue to measure up to the measurement God has poured out for you. And don't be afraid. God's will is better. His plan is greater. Joy is coming for you. It may be because you died and are then with the God the Father in rest and glory. He who ascended has left you behind for a little while, but not forever. He will return and take you back with him. Is there a greater joy than that? I don't think there is. Let's end our time on that. Dear Lord Jesus, Lord, I thank you so much for being the one who ascended, Lord, for, for descending in the first place, becoming in flesh like me, and then descending even further to the place I cannot go. Lord, and if I do go there, I will remain there, and that will be the end of me. But Lord, by your perfect divine nature, you were not trapped in that place. You were broken free by the will of God. You walked out of that tomb, and the stone moved on the hand of God's accord, not the hand of men. Lord, and then you ascended a final time into the clouds with a final, Lord, not a warning, but a, but a, a commission for us. Go forth and spread my story. Tell the exploits of my name. Share the power of this thing we call the gospel, the good news that saves the hearts of the rebellious ones. I thank you, Lord. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.